Jesus was crucified at Golgotha on the cross. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have focused on Jesus' crucifixion and have discussed its theological impact. It has become the central symbol used in Christian art, architecture, and jewelry. But the question is, what did Jesus' cross actually look like? Have you ever thought about that? The Romans, remember, they used crucifixion as a way to punish and also humiliate the condemned throughout several regions and for a few hundred years. So whenever they're experimenting, they did not just have one crucifixion method. In fact, they had four main crucifixes. The first is called the crux simplex, which is just a tree or a pole or a piece of wood. The person would be tied or have their hands above their head nailed. Next was the crux commissia, which is like a capital T. Here the condemned would carry the top part and then they would connect it to the vertical part. Third, we have the crux emissia, which is the shape that most people think of whenever they think of the cross. And finally, we have the crux decasata, which is an X shape. Here the condemned would have their arms and feet stretched out. Ouch. So, which was Jesus' crucifixion? Was it this one or that one? We don't know exactly, but the Bible does mention that Jesus' arms were stretched out, so that pretty much rules out the first one. And there is some evidence that in GD in the first century, it seems to be the second one, the Crux Commission, which is the one shaped like a capital T. Now, considering that Jesus had to carry his cross, if it was a cross like we're used to seeing, then that would weigh 400 pounds. It'd be impossible for anyone to carry at all. Now with the Crux Commission, Jesus would have carried the top piece only, which still weighed a ton. His head would be lower than his hands, think of them like this, so there would be still plenty of room to nail the sign saying that Jesus is the King of the Jews. It's only a guess, we don't know for sure, but the important thing is that Jesus did die on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. So there you go. A little bit about crucifixion, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, as we continue with this passion narrative, as we watch Jesus go to the cross tonight, and some of the events that immediately follow, and and then finally, his rising from the dead, Lord, we, we give you thanks. <laughs> we're blown away when we're reading through these passages how much you love us, how much you were willing to go through for us, your obedience to your Father, your obedience to following his will, the, the, the amazing love which continued your walk toward the cross, one for us, your ability to say to us, we're forgiven. Father, we thank you for that forgiveness tonight. We thank you for your incredible love, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that in Jesus' name tonight, and all God's people said, amen. We find ourselves in Luke 23 tonight, similar to where we were last time, but we're going to be in verse 32. We're going to pick up there. And so, Jesus had just been crucified, as Mike kind of talked about the different ones. Two others were crim- who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And so fulfilling the prophecy that he was that he's crucified, right, killed with those that were sinners. And when they came to the place of that, that is called the skull, they, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said this where we finished off last week, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they do. Now I want to expand that a little bit. It's not that they didn't know that they ramrodded him through a mock court. 
It's not that they didn't know what they were doing when they were mocking him on the cross. It's not that they didn't know that he didn't deserve to die this horrible death. It's not that they didn't know what Pilate was trying to do and setting him free each and every moment and they rebuffed it at every turn. It's not that their sin wasn't grotesque in every possible way. What they didn't realize, apparently, is that they were killing the Christ, the Son of God, the prophesied Messiah. And so he said in the midst of that, Father, forgive them. They don't really get what they're doing. 23 verse 34, yep. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. One of the, the rights of the guys who, of the soldiers who watched and guarded the cross was that they could split whatever garments they had left up on him. So they split the garments, divided them by lots, and the people stood by watching. And I want you to understand, Jerusalem was probably filled with tens of thousands of people at this time, maybe even close to 100,000 because it was the Passover, because you had tons of people from all over the place. And this was a big deal. Crucifixions were all, always kind of big deals. You'd go and you'd kind of, kind of they were like events, you know, you, shows that you could kind of watch. How's the condemned going to react this time? How are they going to deal with this? But this was Jesus. This was a popular figure. This was one that they thought was going to be king of the Jews, right? This is one they thought was the Messiah was going to change everything. And so people came to see what would transpire. But it's interesting, as Luke talks about this, most of them just kind of stood watching. We know from other accounts that there was some mocking from the people, people who didn't know what went down the night before, people who didn't know the extent of his innocence, perhaps. But, but in Luke, he talks about them just watching, and the rulers were the ones scoffing at him. Remember, the rulers were the ones that wanted to look clean in this account, right? They didn't want to get their hands dirty by stoning him, so they wanted Pilate to do it. You know, plausible deniability. They wanted to say that he was crucified for, for not just crimes against, you know, Judaism in the Bible, or as they knew it, but, but also against the state. I mean, this was a rotten guy. He was getting what he just deserved. <laughs> but the way things had played out, everybody knew he was innocent. You'll see in just a moment, Pilate actually put a text above his head that Mike talked about his crime, king of the Jews. It was almost like Pilate's final little kind of moment to, to try to get even a little bit. This was the crime that you said he was guilty of? All right, that's what we'll put up there. He's guilty of king of the Jews. Showing before everybody kind of the the duplicity and the dumbness that this guy was crucified in the first place. Is that really a crime to be king of the Jews? No. So the people stood by watching, but the rulers, losing themselves in the moment, started scoffing at him. Remember, these were the religious leaders, the pastors of the day, if you will, right? Nothing warms the heart like listening to your pastor ridicule and mock somebody who's dying, right? They lost themselves in the moment showed themselves for what they were. In their minds, we can't spit on him like we did in the mock court the night before, but we can certainly mock him to his face. Saying he saved others, let him save himself. Not that they believed that he saved others, but this was the proof, right? If he can't save himself, then surely none of that stuff happened before. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one. It's interesting, even in their condemnation, even in their mockery, they speak truth about who Jesus was. The Christ of God is chosen one. 
This was the religious elite. This was the Sanhedrin that you have to imagine. They all voted 100%, at least those that were there that night, to crucify Jesus, that they were following through on watching Jesus die. That the mass of them, not everybody of course, but the mass of them had gathered around the cross to make sure that Jesus died. I mean, that's what they ramrodded this whole thing for. Buffeted by the fact that some of the leaders of the Jews were mocking him, the soldiers who probably wouldn't have done this otherwise began to speak up and mock him as well. Coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also the inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged next to him on the cross railed against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We know from the other gospels that both prisoners started out mocking Jesus. But you have to imagine, they saw and they witnessed all that had transpired. They too were getting beaten, you know, before the crucifixion. But they saw how far they went with Jesus. They too knew that they were justly punished. And they saw how they ramrodded Jesus through. And here Jesus was at strength's end, hanging on the cross but that wasn't enough. They continued to mock. They continued to harangue. They continued to go after him. Both prisoners at the beginning joined the course, but you've got to imagine if there was anything going on in your heart, you just see this guy at one point becoming silent and taking it all in. He'd already said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And finally, this one criminal that God had been doing something in his heart, he rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? The Jews believed, not all of them, but the Pharisees for sure, and most of the people believed in an afterlife. And they believed that, that if you're a bad person, bad things happen, Right? They weren't as clear on the picture of heaven and hell, perhaps, as we are today, but they knew it wasn't a good thing to be wanting in front of an angry God. And God was certainly angry with them because of what they had done. They were facing their just rewards for what they had done. And now they've both been guilty of haranguing against the one that professed to be his son. So he goes on and he says, don't you understand? Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Look, we're going to go meet our maker soon. In our world today, that should still matter a little bit, right? Don't you care that you're going to go meet God one day? Shouldn't that change some of what you do? It seems such a far cry from the normal discourse of our society, and yet still somehow today that should matter. He goes on and says, we are indeed justly we are indeed justly for, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It was not lost on him what they had done to Jesus. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This was not the, the, the theology of glory about the Messiah that the Pharisees and all the Jewish kids had been taught for forever. This was a guy who looked at Jesus and said, hey, this is the guy. And his kingdom will come according to everything Scripture had said, speaking that he's a Jew, that he understood at least that. 
But he somehow turned from his arrogance and his frustration and his anger to complete belief and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not we're going to be dead in a little bit, (laughs) but remember me. When you set up your kingdom, when you set up everything, remember me and don't hold me accountable. And Jesus turns to him and he says, truly, in other words, emphatically he's saying, I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot of confusion about what happens after we die. There's like a holding tank where we're all kind of don't know anything for a while. Then we go on the last day to be with Jesus. But, but Jesus speaks very clearly in this text and in others in the New Testament. When we die, at least it will seem, right? And every, that at that next moment, we're going to be with God forever. In paradise, receiving our reward, our heavenly kingdom, the mansions or the rooms or whatever he talks about in Scripture, in the next moment, in that very day, he says, you'll be with me in paradise. He was probably just hoping, yeah, I won't hold what you said earlier against you, you know, and, and, and yeah, I'll kind of remember you. Maybe you can be part of it somewhere. But he said, today you'll experience this. Today you'll be ushered into paradise and get the first fruits of the kingdom that is to come. Today you will be with me which was good news for him because sometimes crucifixions will last like three or four days. And just the fact that he said today means my suffering's going to end today. And then he gave him the hope of everlasting. He goes on and he says, or the narrative goes on and says, it was now the sixth hour. It was about 12 o'clock. And there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour, three o'clock. Well, the sun's light failed. And we don't know exactly what happened. There wasn't, um, there wasn't some kind of astronomical thing where the, I forget, an eclipse of some sort because it was the full moon. It's impossible actually to have a, an eclipse with the, full, with the full moon, I guess. And so it wasn't that. It, it could have been heavy cloud cover, of course, that would have shielded so much. It could have been any number of things, but ultimately it was a miracle of God. What had been daylight before suddenly became very dark and ominous, shielding the light. Now, would that freak you out a little bit if you were part of this whole thing? This isn't the way it usually goes down, you know? And they're thinking they did something that was right before God, right? They were patting themselves on the back. We just rid ourselves of, of this, this guy who was warping Scripture and leading people astray. If anything, the sun should be shining. But as things go down, it gets darker and darker and darker. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and this was a massive curtain. It was shielding between the holy of holies and the, and the holy place, which was just a place in the Herod's temple. Actually, it was nothing there. It used to be where you had the, the Ark of the Covenant there and, and some different things, but, but they didn't have that anymore. So it was just this massive curtain behind which was just where God was supposed to reside. A lot of the official uh, priestly stuff was done in the holy place, but only once a year would they go behind this curtain. And it was a massive curtain. And it was thick, too, because you couldn't see through it. That was the intention of the curtain, to shield that space from everybody. And so it was a thick curtain. It was ornately designed. It had been there for forever. You only used it once a year. And weirdly... It split right down the middle. There was people preparing for the evening sacrifices at the time. There would have been a host of the priests doing their duties. And all of a sudden, this ripping sound, which would have gotten attention from anybody around the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, the entrance was laid bare. The scriptural significance is that Jesus now, 
erases that division between him and us. That through the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness that is now complete in us, we have full access to our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. There is now nothing that divides. But again, would that freak you out? What in the world's happening? It's getting darker. Temple had this really weird thing happening. We know from other scriptures that there was, there was an earthquake. Lots of times people think, well, it was the earthquake that caused the curtain to, to rip, but it wouldn't have gone like this. It would have gone something like this as it torn apart. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We know in other scripture that he says right before that, it is finished. So Jesus went through all that he went through. God, God, why have you forsaken me from other scriptures? God had let him deal with the brutality of what he was experiencing. He had to go through the fullness of that pain, of that excruciating mockery, all of it, to pay for our sin. But when it was done, almost as a sign of victory, he says, it is finished. He breathes his last, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. And he dies. And when the centurion saw that it had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Again, don't get lost in the fact that these, all these characters, the centurion, the thief on the cross, saw the preponderance of what played out with Christ. He was a centurion, kind of an odd guy to have there guarding a crucifixion, but Jesus was an important figure. Probably had an extra, bit, uh, extra set of guards, not just the 12 normally there for three guys. But he looked at all that went down, heard what the thief on the cross said, heard every word of Jesus, saw the mockery, saw how Jesus responded and said, surely this was the Son of God. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, right, for the show, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They went home, not really sure what went, just went down. They were hoping to see this big show, hoping to see Jesus humiliated, hoping to see some kind of show and what Jesus would say and what the Pharisees would say, and he was getting his just rewards, but Jesus just appeared innocent at every step. Well, and then it got dark, and then they got word that the temple curtain had ripped, and then the earthquake and all that stuff that went down. They went home going, what did our leaders just do? There was an eerie sensation about the whole thing. This wasn't quite normal. What went down isn't quite right. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They couldn't go close. Mary actually did with John. They got through the guards a little bit, probably because she was mom, but certainly they wouldn't allow a big group of his friends to come that close. And probably it wasn't politic, right, to go that close without suffering some kind of ridicule. But they stood there watching everything that went down and they're like, what do we do with this? And probably occurring to them for the first time, what do we do with the body? Right? What do we do with the body? Are they just going to throw it into the trash heap? Now there's a man from, named Joseph from Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. 
Joseph was a member of Sanhedrin. You know that from other texts. We know that he had kept silent for his faith in Jesus so that not to, you know, invoke the ridicule of the rest of the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Sanhedrin had even created rules that if you follow Jesus, you were booted from your position and alienated from the temple. So he was quiet, as many of us could understand. Are we ready to give up all for Jesus? Or could we just be quiet and let things play out as long as we can? But he was there that day, and you got to imagine, after seeing all that went down, he buffeted himself up and he said, I got to do this. He risked his reputation, he risked his position on the Sanhedrin, access to the temple. But he went to the soldier and said, Hey, can I speak to Pilate about taking the body? Joseph was a man of incredible affluence, an important figure because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The guard would have been glad to say, oh yeah, you can, you can meet with Pilate. And so he goes to Pilate, goes right into the praetorium. Pilate often, and the Romans often, would give bodies to family or friends. I mean, they would save them from having to do it. And so they said, sure. This man went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in the tomb cut of stone where no one had ever been laid. It's interesting, they talk about Joseph taking the linen and Nicodemus actually getting the spices. Kind of a random thing, right? But both were necessary for the proper burial of somebody, which indicates that they had talked about it prior at some point. If this goes down, we got to bury him. And so maybe to be discreet, you know, one gets this thing and one gets this thing, but Nicodemus got so many spices, he had to go through several vendors and they would have had to carry it, you know, to the tomb. But that's what went down. Joseph got access to the body. He had to do it before sundown, right? That would have clicked into the Sabbath as soon as sundown happened. So they were rushing to get this thing done. He got some people. Maybe the guards got some people for him too, but they got the body somehow. They, they got it to his tomb, which he had bought for himself. I mean, this was going to be for his family. I mean, it was in a prime spot. This, it only had actually a few spaces for different bodies. I mean, this was for his immediate family, but he knew God was calling to give it to Jesus. And so they got to the to the side of the, the tomb and they wrapped him in the linen cloth, probably wiped away the blood that was soaked all over his body and maybe with the wine vinegar right from the, from, the, from the crucifixion if the guards allowed, but with something, water. Wrapped him in the linens. It was kind of a quick job. They got to get him in there before the rest. Gave some ointments, but it was clearly not a done job. They were going to have to come back after the Sabbath and finish up. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was just beginning so they were hurrying. The women who had come from, with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid. These were his disciples, right? So they followed him. They, they came to the tomb. To know where he was laid, they had to go into the tomb. And so Joseph was letting him in, seeing how everything played out. Then they returned and prepared the spices and ointments before the Sabbath would begin. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. When you read through scripture, aren't you amazed at how seriously they took the Sabbath? It was a day dedicated to God, dedicated to family, dedicated to rest. And it was a day that they didn't mess with, not if you were a good Jew. 
They would have never thought about not making temple services, right? Or they would have never thought about not spending time with their family. They would have never thought about so many of the things that we preoccupy our Sabbath with today. So instead of feeling an urgency to go finish up the job, and there was urgency, two nights and one day would pass, right, before they could finish up this job. And every hour matters when there's a decomposing body. But they took the Sabbath in obedience to God's command. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, so as soon as they possibly could on Easter morning, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, that Nicodemus had bought, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, which would have freaked them out. There had been a seal on that tomb, showing that if anybody broke the seal, right, they would know that somebody was interfering with the whole thing. The, the Pharisees during the Sabbath had used that to get a whole contingent of, of, of soldiers to guard that tomb and fear that some, some of the disciples would steal the body and somehow say, oh yeah, he's risen or something like that. Weirdly, they were afraid of him rising from the dead where the disciples were not. But the disciples were kind of trying to figure out what was going on. They weren't looking forward and hoped him rising, but in fear the Pharisees were. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Kudos to them for walking in. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? And we have this idea that, that when we die, there's nothing, but that's not a scriptural tenet. I am the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus says. He is the God of the living and not the dead. So he says here, he's risen. Why do you seek among the dead what, the living? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. You got to imagine maybe they're remembering some of the prophecies. I mean, as we talked through Luke, he kept telling them again and again and again, I'm going to die at the hands of evil men. I'm going to die at the hands of the Pharisees and the chief priests. I'm going to die at the hands of Rome. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again, right? I mean, any of this click at a bell, but still they struggled to believe. Well, I was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day to rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told these things to the other 11 and all the rest. But we know from other scriptures that they didn't believe. Oh, they're just seeing things. I don't know what they told themselves. Oh, they, they're just, they're wanting to believe this so much. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women with him who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale and they did not believe them. It's kind of a curious thing. His followers struggled to believe that he had risen from the dead. And from the other reports, the Pharisees were freaking out. The soldiers came back, Tullum went, went down, and they said, you've got to be quiet about this. We've got to figure out what to do. It's so hardened were they, they, they didn't contemplate. We just killed the Son of God. They just says, we've got to hush this up lest we lose our position. Lest the people mock us. They were in ardent belief that something bad just, or in this case, good, right? But that, that Jesus had risen because of the angels, because of the way that went down, because of what the soldiers said. And the disciples still struggled, even with eyewitnesses seeing angels. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women that went with them and who told them these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them like an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter, he rose and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter of all people <laughs> clung to the hope that maybe Jesus did rise. He didn't just naysay it like the others, but he ran to the tomb in hopes that he would see Jesus. Why? What was the last thing he did? He denied him three times, locked eyes with Jesus over the last denial, and then he watched Jesus be crucified, punished, berated, whipped, mocked, and die on a cross. He ran to the tomb in hopes of seeing Jesus, but he didn't. And he was confused because something he knew had happened. The very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I think that's a marvelous thing, that somehow sometimes God just kind of puts a shield over our eyes to not see, so that we have to trust, Right? And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Clopas said and answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See how that rock-solid faith has wavered a little bit? We had hoped that he was the one. Right? Clearly he's not. He died, right? But, but man, we had hoped that he was the one. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things had happened. According to prophecy, probably a day to pay attention to. Over some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, they even saw a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went up to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but, but him they did not see. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones. Seems like that would have got their attention right there. That's something Jesus would say, something he would say to us as well. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How often do we fall into that same category, though? How slow are we to believe the promises of God? How slow we are even to believe the forgiveness of God, the thing that we celebrate at Easter, the very kind of central piece of our faith that Jesus dies and rose again so that we could be forgiven. And I say that because how often do you ask forgiveness for the same things over and over and over when Jesus forgave you the first time? How often do you beat yourself up thinking you're not worthy of the forgiveness that he went through all that for? It's not just that. I visit people at the hospital, and, and I can't tell you how many times people on their deathbed need to be reassured that they're forgiven and loved by God. The truth is simple, right? But it's life that complicates that truth over and over and over. It's life that seems to distort things and change things and make things weird and get us thinking that up is down and all those different things. But the truth is still the truth. How slow we are to just believe its words. And we all long for peace in this life, don't we? 
for that center, for the ability to deal with life as it comes, for a perspective on which to deal with all that comes at us. Peace comes from that trusting God. If you trust that God is with you, if you trust that God cares, if you trust that he's working all things for your good, if you trust that he loves you, then why in the midst of difficulty do you run from him instead of run to him? Do we forget that Satan's the one that's messing up our life and is God the one that continues to walk with us through it and continues to get us to the other side that promises that one day we'll be with him? Oh, how slow it is for us to believe. Our worries, our fears, our anxieties all condemn us. We are forgiven in Jesus' name. He is there. He is powerful. He is almighty, and he cares about you. That's why he did all this. So Jesus says, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe what all the prophets have spoken. And then he explains it. God bless him. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And he goes through the whole of Scripture, the Old Testament, showing him how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. That had to be an awesome time. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. As I think almost any one of us would have done, having the pages open of Scripture to us like that, having our hearts burning within us because of what we were being taught, what we were learning. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed them and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Maybe God withdrew his hand. Maybe they saw the, the marks in his hand. Something triggered them. And all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Jesus no longer compelled to earthly things, right? He's risen. He's gone back to heaven. And now he's, he's showing himself to his disciples. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we taught, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened up to, the, to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has indeed risen. He's appeared to Simon. And so somehow Simon had seen him as well. And they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they're talking about all these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, they were just confessing that they believed that he rose, right? <laughs> but it says here they were startled and frightened when they saw a spirit. It's one thing to believe, not being there, that Jesus rose. Quite another thing if he showed up in church today, wouldn't it? And they were freaked out and they were startled. And so Jesus responds to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, it is, my, it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said all this, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and they took it and they ate it before him. I guess that was enough for them. They're like, all right, you're Jesus. You're, you're, you're here. <laughs> but even with Jesus there, they still struggled to believe. I was talking to a, a gal one time and she was struggling over a piece of scripture and she says, I just, I can't receive it. I just, 
foundationally just feel something different, think something different. And I said, yeah, it's one of the hard things about Scripture, isn't it? I promise you, as you read through it, right, there's going to be a part of it that you go, whew, I don't like that. It's either convicting you on a sin. It's challenging, challenging some of our, I don't know, our contemporary culture views. It's doing something that speaks a truth that's hard for us to grasp hold of. Maybe it's tithing, right? Struggling to believe that God really does bless in response to putting him first in that area. But whatever it is in Scripture, whenever we feel one way and God shares with us another, guess who's always right? He is. And part of the hardness of being a disciple is yielding our wisdom, our feelings, our understanding to God. And it's somehow, someway knowing he's right, even though we don't understand it. So he shows himself as, to his disciples and said, hey, I'm here. I've defied pretty much everything you know about, you know, life and death, but the reality is I'm here and I love you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet and while they still displeased for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? And then verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He had to imagine at that point all those prophecies of his death were coming back. They'd just been reminded by the ladies just a little bit before, talking about probably what he shared with Peter and these two guys. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The church is supposed to be about this message. The fact that Jesus died gives you forgiveness of all your sins, and that matters because that's what God's angry about, our sin. We should be alienated from him. We should go to hell because of them, but because of Jesus, he offers us a way to paradise. And when we die, we don't have to go up and say, well, about that divorce or about that whatever or about this. He says, what are you talking about? It's been forgiven. That's got to be the central message of our age because people are yearning for it. Well, I say that. We live in a culture that's so minimized what sin is, right? I'm okay, you're okay, this is my truth, that is your truth. We really don't have sin much in the world today. We have versions of it. If you're from the PC crowd, you don't like anything that's not PC, right? But the reality is we've lost the sense of sin. I was talking to a gal who goes to a, a, a different church body, or actually has come here from a different church body, and, and we were talking, and, and, and they talk about forgiveness of sins at their church, but they've kind of abandoned Scripture in a lot of different ways. And so I say, when you confess your sins, what are you confessing? Like, what is the sin that you're sorry for? And I ask that because they permit this, they encourage this, they do this, they, they, they forsake Scripture in so many different ways. And so what, what exactly are they sorry for? Unfortunately, that's permeated so much of what we call Christian culture today. We have a Jesus that we say saves, we just don't know what he saves us from. Are, are you alarmed or surprised that so many people are leaving the church if that's the case? Because if someone looks at their faith in God, they say, well, we think it's cool that he saved us, but what does he save us for? 
or from. And they don't get it because it doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense when you realize how much he hates your sin, how much he was willing to do to forgive your sin, that nothing was more important to him. He wanted to save you. And he was willing to do everything it took to save you. And that should change our life. And if we trust that, and we trust that he is true and good and righteous and just, then it should make us want to follow him because we trust that his ways are the right ways. It's dumbfounding to us, it's because of our sinful self, that we start doubting him in all these other areas when we know that his ways are the right ways. And so it's out of that love that we follow. It's out of that love that we keep on trying and falling and trying and falling but it's because of the forgiveness that he gives us the strength to keep on going. It's because of the forgiveness that ultimately it's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done. Great is the love of our God. Oh, I better finish this, otherwise we're gonna be in trouble. Um, anybody know? Verse 48 is where I am, okay. Um, you are the witnesses to all these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's talking about Pentecost. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And he's talking again about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit rushed upon them. And then he led them out as far as Bethany. And, and lining up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's a powerful statement at the end there. The Jews were not wanting them to preach Jesus Certainly not wanting them to preach Jesus in the temple. But upon seeing Jesus rise from the dead, they knew that God forgot all things were possible. They knew that they were forgiven by him. They knew that they had a purpose and a ministry and a mission. And they went back to tell everybody what had happened. And here's the deal. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, do you think some of the events of that day would have got their attention? Came home beating their chests. Do you think the earthquake and, and all the stuff that went down, do you think the, the, the tomb being opened, do you think reports of Jesus appearing to different people wouldn't have gotten their attention? Do you think they were secure in the fact that they killed Jesus or do you think they were pretty worried about it? And it's in that light that Peter goes in and shares with the Jews his first sermon and 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus in that moment. It was because they realized what they had done. And it drove them to repentance. And every time that happens, Jesus forgives. Okay, now I can say, oh no, it's still going. Um, then he left them as far as, oh no, I did everything. Okay, great is the love of our God. I'm gonna pray now. <laughs> it's 6.36. God, we love you so much. And as we go through the rest of the Passion, again, we're blown away by the hatred of the people that were against you. You dying on a cross was not enough. They had to pile it on by their abuse. Even the soldiers joined in. And then both, both of the thieves on the cross. But Lord, almost as a gift to Jesus, you show them that one turns to you, that one believes, and that one will be with him forever in paradise. I mean, what a cool gift, right? As you're dying for, the, for everybody in the world, before you go, you know, I at least got one. 
And that's evidence of so many more that will come. Father, thank you for loving us enough to continue going to the cross. Thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for paying for our sins. Thank you for providing us a way to heaven so that we can enjoy paradise like that thief. Father, we thank you for Jesus tonight and all God's people said, amen.